0: Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors of Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as yourselves know. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Your will, You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day.
1: We're going to spend some time now thinking a bit more about that second passage that we just read from Acts chapter 2. We've had a lot going on already this morning, so let's pray that God will quieten our hearts and minds to hear what He has to say to us. Heavenly Father, we do pray for the work of Your Spirit among us this morning, uh, that as we continue to reflect on Your Word, You will give us ears and hearts of faith uh, that are ready to respond rightly To who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus. Amen. When the real king turns up, the fight for the throne is over and everyone gets put in their place. That's what I learned from watching Robin Hood movies as a kid. I'm sure most of us have seen a Robin Hood movie or two in our time. There's been a lot of them. That's not even all of them. I wonder which one of those kind of identify as the real Robin Hood as you think about kind of Robin Hood movies. But one of the things that really sticks in my mind, one of the scenes that really sticks in my mind from the Robin Hood movies is the final scene. It's not in all of them, but in many of them that I'm talking about that final moment when the king turns up, King Richard. Good name for a king in my opinion. And, and what he does is he throws off his tattered rags and reveals his shining armour and his crown, and there is no doubt that this is the real king, undisputed. Because up until that point, John, his brother Prince John, had been trying to take over the throne, right? Along with the Sheriff of Nottingham and the Archbishop of someplace. But when the true king is revealed, all arguments are over, and there is no denying who is the king. And in that moment... That's the moment when you want to have been on his side, right? That's when he kind of rewards his friends and judges his enemies. It's the beginning of the happily ever after moment for the friends, but for the enemies, it's all over. And I mention that because there is one of those moments in Acts chapter 2 that we're looking at this morning, although there is a twist. What it tells us is that we live in the final scene of God's story for the world, God's epic story, and now is the time to side with the real king. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2, and the first point that we're going to see in this is that the pouring out of God's spirit signals the final moment in God's plan for the world. Signals the final moment in God's plan for the world and and it begins with the fulfillment of a promise. A promise that Jesus had made just 10 days earlier, 10 days before, just just before Jesus had ascended to heaven, he said to his apostles, in just a few days' time, you will receive (coughs) the gift of the Holy Spirit and that will empower you to bear witness about me. Do you remember we heard that last week? And now here in chapter 2, we hear exactly that happening on the day of Pentecost. Let me read from verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, that's 50 days after Passover, they were together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. You see, the Spirit enabled them to speak in other tongues, which simply means in other languages, as the next section from verse 5 and following makes pretty clear. You see, it tells us that in Jerusalem at the time, there were Jews from all parts of the world who speak all different languages who'd gathered in Jerusalem. They spoke different languages, but the Holy Spirit enabled the disciples to speak in those languages. And so you see in verse 11, they respond, we all hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue, in our own native language. And this is exactly what Jesus had promised. The Spirit is empowering the mission of Jesus by enabling the apostles to speak even across language barriers. See, even language barriers now are not a barrier for the gospel. That's what's happening here. If we just scratch the surface just a little bit we discover that there's something even more significant going on here because this is the fulfillment of a plan of God that goes back thousands of years to the tower of babel. You know the tower of babel in Genesis chapter 11 that was a story of humanity united against God. They wanted to make a name for themselves and build a tower to kind of to oppose God, to stand up and make themselves equal with God, in challenge to God, and God came down and said, no, I will not have that. You know, God's all for humanity uniting, but not uniting against him. And so God's judgment on them was to confuse their languages so that they could no longer understand each other and to scatter them. That was the curse of Babel. And that's where we get the, the word babbling from, you know, babbling in nonsense. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, really, it's just the beginning. It's the beginning of God's plan to, to gather people to himself and to bless people. And this moment at Pentecost is a powerful symbol of that blessing coming to pass by breaking down the language barriers that, that existed between people so that people from every language can understand each other. See, God is overcoming, he's reversing the curse of Babel to bless. This is Babel unbabbled, you could say. And it signals that God's plan for the world is coming to a climax. And that's what Peter explains when he stands up in front of everyone to tell them what's going on from, from, say, verse 16 and 17 onwards. He quotes from the prophet Joel and he says, this massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit that you can see clearly happening among you now, that's the sign of the last days that God had promised would come. The final moments in God's plan for the world. Let me read from verse 16. No, says Peter, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. You see, previously God had been, I guess you could say, fairly selective in how he poured out his spirit on people. you know, One person here, another person there, a prophet here, a judge there. But the promise of Joel that God made through the prophet Joel is that in the last days there would be a massive outpouring of his spirit on all his people. And this event at Pentecost is the signal that that time has come, that we really are reaching the climax of God's plan for the world. It's the time to sit up and pay attention. And what we must pay attention to is what Peter says next, that the resurrection of Jesus proves that he is the Messiah, God's King. You see, that that miraculous beginning to this remarkable day on Pentecost really just set the stage for the main event that was about to follow, which is Peter's sermon. So it's like, you know, the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games, which we're about to have maybe if things go okay in Japan. You know, think about how massive the opening ceremony is and how grand it is. It's really just the beginning of the main event, which is the actual Olympic Games, right? Well, that's kind of like what's going on here. The main event is Peter's sermon. I mean, have a think about that for a moment. There's clearly miraculous stuff that's going on, but that's just the curtain raiser, for this sermon. I mean, if I had to choose between seeing some clearly miraculous event and a sermon, I know which one I'd choose. But that's exactly what we heard last week, the power of the Spirit is for, to enable the mission about Jesus. That's the purpose of this miraculous event, to enable Peter to to preach the gospel of Jesus, which is what he does. And he starts, really, I guess in verse 22, with a pretty heavy Accusation. Look at what he says from verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by witnesses, sorry, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. That's pretty heavy. Remember that guy, Jesus, he says, who did all that amazing stuff, who you killed? Of course they would have remembered. It was only seven weeks earlier and it was a big, significant moment in Jerusalem. And notice how many times he says you in those couple of sentences. You saw what he was like. You should have known better. You did this. You killed him. But that's not even the main point of what Peter's going to say on this day. Because it turns out that this was all part of God's plan. And this is where Peter gets to the the main bit that he wants to tell them in verse 24. But God raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. You see, if Jesus had just stayed dead, then... This would have been just another story of a tragic, unjust death. And history is full of those. History is full of unjust deaths. And I suspect there are heaps more of those than we have heard of because normally they just get swept under the carpet and nobody hears about them. This would have been just another one of those. A tragedy, but the end of the story. But it's not the end of the story because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. And that's what makes the difference. And have a look with me now as Peter explains the significance of God raising Jesus to life. And it all revolves around some thousand-year-old prophecies from King David. So, particularly in Psalm 16, which he quotes from verse 25 onwards, King David spoke about his confidence that God would not abandon his Messiah to the grave. Let me read just from verse 26. This is what David says, King David. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. God will not let his Holy One see decay. You notice as we read that, it sounds like David is speaking about himself. He says, I, and he says, me. But Peter's point is that David did stay in the grave. And in fact, David's grave was just around the corner in Jerusalem from where Peter was speaking that day. Physical props can be pretty useful sometimes when you're giving a speech, and that was certainly the case uh, for Peter on that day. You can imagine him in, in Jerusalem saying, if you like, we can all go on an excursion around the corner and you'll see David's grave. You probably walked past it on the way here. He's still in there or at least what's left of him is. And no one has ever claimed otherwise. David stayed in the grave because he wasn't talking about himself. He was speaking prophetically about someone else, about one of his descendants who God would raise to life, who God would not abandon to the grave. He would raise him up to be the forever king of his forever kingdom. The Messiah. Do you you hear what Peter's saying here? The one who God has raised from the dead, never to die again, is the Messiah. And Peter is saying, we are here to tell you that that man is Jesus. We are witnesses of this, he says. The man you crucified, God has raised from the dead. And he spells it out for them in verse 36, if it hasn't been clear so far. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I mean, talk about being on the wrong side of history. These guys are are the ones who've sided with Prince John, just as King Richard turns up. They're the guys who side with Darth Vader, just as the Death Star blows up. They're the guys who... By shares in Nokia just as the smartphone revolution begins. They're on the wrong side. And that just begins to scratch the surface of how much they are on the wrong side. They killed the guy. But God said no and raised him from the dead. And now they're standing on the wrong side of God's eternal king. Now, how do you deal with that piece of information? What do you do with that discovery? I wonder if you could. Put yourselves for a moment in those guys' shoes. How would you have felt if you'd been there on that day and and been told that? Verse 37 tells us how they reacted to this news. Let me read verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? were cut to the heart. That's such a powerful expression, isn't it? Cut to the heart. So overcome with the gravity of what Peter has told them, that they're mortified, they're distraught, they're distressed, devastated. They knew in that moment that they were standing on the wrong side of God and his king and so their response was to plead. What can we do? Is there anything that we can do? Is there any way that we can somehow undo what we have done? I wonder if you've ever had that feeling. Is there any way that I can undo what I have done? That overwhelming sense of, of, the, of the significance or the consequence, the gravity of, of your actions, of your mistakes even, failures. Can't I somehow turn back the clock on that? Do it again, start again, not do that. These guys are realising that they have made themselves enemies of God and now they see where they stand and they are cut to the heart. What shall we do? Can you hear their desperation in that? You know, this is exactly the right response for anyone who discovers that they are on the wrong side of God not just for those people who were there on the day of Jesus' death and calling for his execution, but for everyone, for every one of us, everyone who is on the wrong side of God and his King Jesus. And so the answer that Peter gives is an answer not just for them, but for everyone. And the answer that Peter gives is good news. It's good news, but there's also a warning in there. The good news is that it's not too late It's not too late. Now is the time to call on the Lord and be saved. That's basically Peter's message. And we get his short answer really in verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, what a glorious message. For those who had been there even on the day of Jesus' death and cried out for his execution on that Easter Friday, condemned him to death, even for them, God was offering a fresh start and complete forgiveness for all those who turn back to him. That's what repentance means, turning back to God. And, and baptism with water is the outward sign of the inward reality of baptism by the Spirit, which Jesus said last week is the thing that really matters. Next week, we're going to hear more of this and when Gary Koo, the bishop, comes to speak. We're going to cover these verses again. But for today, I want to focus just on how amazing and how urgent this is. How amazing and how urgent. Firstly, it's amazing because it should be too late. It should be too late, but it's not. The coming of God's Messiah was meant to be the day of God's judgment. The last days, the, the, the great and awesome day of the Lord, as it says in verse 20, when God separates those who are for him and those who are against him, his enemies and his friends. But the amazing news that Peter had for the crowd on that day is that it was not too late. It is not too late. That the victorious Messiah, the King, is willing to accept The surrender of his enemies, and better than that, is willing to welcome them as his friends. Complete forgiveness, a fresh start. How good is that? I mean, clearly this is not what they were expecting. They thought that it was too late. They thought they'd missed their chance. That they'd shot down the rescue plane, so to speak. Because normally, as I said at the beginning, when the when the king arrives and triumphs over his enemies, that's the end. It's too late to change sides. But for Jesus, it was the beginning of a great time of amnesty, of pardon, of peace, to join the side of the victorious king when he calls all people to turn back to him. That's the amazing news that Peter had for them on that day and for everyone. And on that day, 3,000 souls were saved. But this amazing news also comes with a sense of urgency and a warning. That is, one day it will be too late. You see the warning there in verse 40. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. This is an urgent warning for every one of us who has not yet turned to Jesus. The time is now. Because one day it will be too late. And if that's anyone here or anyone watching on the live stream, then that's what we need to hear today. Repent and turn to the risen Messiah, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. Nothing could be more important. But for every one of us, we need to hear the sense of urgency that Peter had and that Jesus had left him and the other apostles with. That is the only reason that God has extended the time between the resurrection of Jesus where he's proclaimed to be the Messiah and the day of judgment when his enemies will be punished is so that people can hear this message that Peter was preaching on that day. So that people can turn to the Lord and be saved because it is not too late. To see how this creates a sense of urgency about the times that we live in. Perhaps better a sense of purpose and purposefulness. The apostles devoted their lives to this purpose because they knew that's what these last days are for. That's what Jesus had left them here to do. And nothing has changed from the purpose of that day till today. God has extended the time of amnesty, of forgiveness, so that we can call people back to his king. I wonder if you feel that sense of purpose and urgency about the days that we live in now. That the only reason the world keeps spinning is because God is giving people a chance to turn back to Jesus. Surely that should give us a sense of urgency and purpose. These are the last days, the days of the Spirit who God has sent to empower the mission about Jesus. There are so many things that we can devote our lives to and fill our lives with. Some of them are good. Some of them are necessary. Some of them are dispensable. But over all of that, do we have a sense of urgency and purpose of what these days are for so that we open our mouths to speak this message of Jesus and then we open our hearts to pray that people will turn to him in repentance and faith, that God's Spirit will do a mighty work on this day as He did on that day. It's my hope and prayer that God does fill us all with a sense of this urgency and purpose in our own lives as we go about the things that we do and also together as a church, that God will work by His Spirit powerfully among us to bring many people here in this place and further abroad into the saving light of his King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is remarkable that at the crowning of your victorious King, you are willing to accept the enemy's surrender, and more than that, to bring them into your kingdom as loved and forgiven children and friends. And Father, we are eternally grateful and thankful That we are the beneficiaries of that. Father, may we be people who recognize the wonder of this news and live with a purpose to share this news with others. And Father, we ask for the power of your Spirit to be at work among us. Give us boldness, give us everything that we need, Father, to be willing and able to speak this message to people around us. And Father, may your Spirit work to bring many lives into the salvation that comes through the name of your Son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.